Would you open up, please, to John chapter 4, and let's get a, you know, that we're on the second part of lesson number 18, which we did not finish last week, Seeking Samaritan Sheep. But before we begin today's lesson, I want to do a quick, quick little review. So probably the best way to do that is read, read the, the scripture and then talk about it as we go through it. Last week, we just got up to verse 21, really, in our discussion. So when you're at John chapter 4... I'll start reading, and then I'll stop, and I'll explain. And if, you, if you weren't here, I really do recommend that you get the tape so that you have the whole flow, because I can't go into minute detail like we did last week, or we'll never get through this story. But this is one of my favorite stories. All right, John chapter 4, beginning with uh, verse 1, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples... He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Remember we talked about the fact that Samaria in Israel was between, or still is, between the southern province of Judah and the northern province of Galilee, and most Jews went around Samaria. They did not go through the heart of Samaria on their way either from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee because they did not want to contaminate themselves with the half-breed Samaritans, whom they greatly despised, and we went, to in, we went into a, um, a history of how the animosity between the Samaritans and the, the Jews began. And, but here it says that he, Jesus, must needs go through, and we talked about the fact that that was a spiritual must because there were Samaritan sheep there in a village called Sychar, which he knew would hear the shepherd's voice and follow him. All right, verse 5, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, and Sychar in Hebrew means what? Purchased. purchased. All right, so he went to a city named Purchased because there he would purchase some of his sheep via way of his precious shed blood on the cross. All right, it came to a village called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, gave to his favorite son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, this was showing us his humanity, that he was tired. Oh, by the way, I found out that to travel from Judea to Galilee would take three days walking three-day walking trip. Uh, so from, he remember he was baptizing in the Judean countryside. For, so from there to Sychar probably would take him about a day. So let's figure they've been traveling for, what, eight hours or nine? I don't know what they considered a day. But he was, he was tired. He was weary. And so it says that he sat thus on the well. It was a big well, seven and a half foot wide well, and he sat down on the wall of the well. And what time was it, ladies? It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus really shocked her by speaking to her. He broke through all kinds of barriers when he said to her, give me to drink, because Jews just did not speak to Samaritans, much less Jewish men, especially religious rulers, did not speak to women in public. <clears throat> and that shocked her right there. Um, plus, he, you know, he crossed over the sex barrier. He crossed over the social barrier because she was an immoral woman. And Jewish rabbis did not speak with immoral people. 
And then, of course, he also broke through the Samaritan barrier when he said, give me to drink. And then we're told in verse 8 that his disciples had gone away into the city of Sychar to buy meat or food because, of course, they were all hungry. Then verse 9, then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And who remembers what no dealings meant, literally, in the Greek? Right, the Jews do not share drinking vessels with the Samaritans. And that had a lot of significance. All right, verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And we also talked about how many times the word give, gave, given, or gift is mentioned in this passage of Scripture because this is all about the giving of a gift. And that gift is Christ's living water or the gift of salvation. And verse 11, now we see the woman beginning to come, emerging from the darkness into the light, because first Jesus was just a Jew, and now all of a sudden she says unto him, Sir, she's showing some element of respect toward him. Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She's saying, you know, you don't even have anything to draw water out of this well, Jacob's well, much less how are you going to draw water out of some mystical, magical, whatever you're talking about, living well, living water well. How are you going to do that? Do you think that you're greater than Jacob who gave us this well and we've been, you know, drinking out of this water for couple thousand years now you greater than him and of course she did not expect him to say yes he was all right verse 13 jesus answered and said unto her whosoever drinketh of this water and i'm sure he pointed down to the water in jacob's well shall thirst again but whosoever drinketh of the water that i shall give him shall never thirst and what we say that meant was in the greek never no never thirst shall never know, never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, again, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's, she's growing. She's now desiring his water, but she's still thinking in physical terms only because she's still thinking, boy, that'd be great to have this water, whatever you're talking about, because then I wouldn't have to come out here a half mile to this well every day in order to draw my water and then carry this heavy water pot back to Sychar. Now, remember, she went to the further well. Jacob's well was a half mile from Sychar, but archaeologists tell us there was a closer well. She didn't go to the closer well because that's where the other women of Sychar went, and she, they did not, they would mock and taunt her and she was an outcast because of her her immoral lifestyle so she went the extra distance to the other well all right where was i Hmm. 16 all right now jesus he's crossed over the sex barrier the social barrier and the samaritan barrier but she needs to cross over the sin barrier so he's going to help her out here he says to her go call thy husband and come hither The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, this is interesting. I don't think I shared this with you last week. But uh, this woman, I I think this woman was really spunky. I kind of like her because uh, she was a talkative little thing. (laughs) if, If you'll notice all the times that she speaks, 
She talks quite a bit. She says long sentences. The only time that she says something very short is when she says, I have no husband. And that in the Greek is only three words. You know, he put his finger on the sore spot of her sin. And I can almost see her, you know, tucking her chin down saying, I have no husband, (laughs) probably under her breath like that. All right, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had how many? Five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And the Greek tells us that not her husband, but somebody else's husband. So she is having an adulterous relationship there. In that saidest thou truly. In verse 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, now watch how she's growing. I perceive that thou art a what? Prophet. First he was just a Jew. Then he was a sir, and now she says, you've got to be a prophet to know what you knew about me. But then she was very evasive. She quickly changed the subject. Let's get off of this topic of my immoral lifestyle. And so she says in verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And she would have pointed to Mount Gerizim, which is visible from the village of Sychar. And uh, that is where the Samaritans worshipped God. They had set a temple up there to worship God, but it had been destroyed by the Maccabees in the intertestamental period. There was no temple there, but they still worshipped there. All right, so she, she would appoint, she would have said, our fathers worshipped in this temple, and ye say, meaning your people, the Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That was as far as we got last week. Now we're going to pick up, and um, I'm going to read through to verse 26. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye, meaning you Samaritans worship, ye know not what. We know, we Jews know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. All right, in answer to the woman's question regarding, this will be back in verse 20, regarding the correct place of worship, the Lord Jesus taught the Samaritan woman, and uh, consequently all future readers of this account, that uh, he taught her some very, very profound truths. He said, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Here he was prophetically foretelling of a time when not only would Samaritans not be worshiping God on Mount Gerizim, but neither would the Jews be worshiping God in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is because not only uh, had the temple on Mount Gerizim been destroyed, but shortly after the time of Christ, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And, of course, the Lord knew that. It was destroyed by the Romans. So he was trying to lift her thoughts above earthly shrines, you know, and temples, and telling her of a soon-approaching hour 
when the worship of God would not be confined to a particular place, to a particular location. There was an hour coming that was going to change the entire nature of worship. The, may, the way that men would approach God would experience an explosive alteration. And that change would come about because of Christ's death and his resurrection and the coming of God the Holy Spirit. The place of worship would no longer be in a temple, you know, on this mountain or in, on this place or whatever. The presence of God would be found where? In the hearts and in the lives of his people. People, therefore, could worship and meet God wherever they wanted to, to worship with him. Can you worship God at home in a closet? <laughs> if you want to, can you come here, here and worship him or in your church and worship him? Or can you worship him on top of a mountain somewhere or in your car as you're driving along? Yes, we can worship God anywhere and anytime. We can worship him all day, every day for that matter. Actually, for the Samaritan woman and others who placed their faith in Christ during the time he walked this earth, that time was actually then. That's why Jesus said, and now is. You notice that? Verse uh, 23. But the hour cometh and now is. When that woman, when she accepts Christ, which she does in this passage, she could then worship God no matter where she was. Um, But also, very clearly, he did tell her that her people were practicing a religion of ignorance. He said, ye, ye Samaritans, worship ye know not what. And uh, very, also very Clearly, he said that what Judaism, what the Jews through Judaism taught with regard to worship was the divine means of revelation. He said salvation is of the Jews. And is salvation of the Jews? Absolutely, because what came to us through the Jewish people, not only the written word of God, but the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Salvation indeed has come to the world through the Jewish people. Samaritan worship was a very crude, well, not very crude, but it was a crude mixture of truth and error. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Not only was their brand of Judaism, now they would have said that they, you know, believe, and they, and they did believe with a head knowledge in the true God. They weren't out there worshiping heathen gods. The God they worshiped was the true God, Jehovah God, but their worship and their understanding of him was incomplete, for one thing, because they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and uh, they refused to accept any of the later prophetic writings. So their, their, their form of Judaism was incomplete, and it also was inaccurate. For one thing, it was inaccurate in that it was incomplete, um, but... For example, to justify their worship on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans made some unscriptural claims. Some of those I mentioned to you last week, such as they said that it was on Mount Gerizim that Abraham had offered Isaac, remember? And they said that uh, that is where Abraham met with Melchizedek. And there's no scriptural authority for those things. Some of the other things that they said was that the Garden of Eden was located on Mount Gerizim and that Adam was actually formed out of the dust of, the, of, of Mount Gerizim, the dust of Mount Gerizim. And they said that Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gerizim. I mean, they were really, <laughs> they were really looking for everything that they could. And that, we know that's totally wrong. Well, we know the other ones. We know about Abraham 
worshipped Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is uh, right where the temple is today in in uh, Jerusalem. So, you know, they were off. Also, uh, they were off with the, with Noah's Ark because we know the scripture says his Ark landed where? Mount Ararat, not Mount Gerizim. <laughs> so that it was inaccurate. They also said that's where Noah offered his first uh, sacrifice after the flood. So at best, the Samaritan form of worship was incomplete and it was tainted a bit with paganism and also... Um, it was inaccurate regarding many of its claims. So the Lord was, was drawing the Samaritan woman's mind, you see here, away from a place. She was focused on where, where, should I, where can I worship God, a place. She'd been thinking in terms of Mount Gerizim or, or Jerusalem. And now he had her focusing not on a place but on a person. And that person was who? God. Well, yeah. He took her from thinking about our fathers. You know, she said, our fathers worshipped here. He took her from thinking about our fathers to thinking about the Father, the Heavenly Father. He told her that an hour was coming when all true worshippers would worship God, the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. Not in a, with a mixture of, of truth and error. Now, in considering this phrase, which is an important phrase... For one thing, and we will talk about this a little later, he says, uh, this is in verse 23. No, it's in 24, excuse me. He says that they must worship him in spirit and truth. And whenever Jesus says must, it's important. So that's why we're going to hang up here for a minute, talking about must we must worship God in spirit and truth. First of all, let's look at the phrase where at the beginning of the verse he says, God is a spirit. Now, you know, whenever you see a word in your Bible that's italicized, like the little word is, that means it's not in the original. It's not in the original language. So the little word is is not in the Greek. Also, the word spirit comes before the word God in the original Greek, and the definite article the is placed in front of the word God instead of in front of instead of A, in front of the word spirit. In other words, that sounds complicated, but I looked this up in the Greek, and here's what it is in the Greek. Pnevmos otheos, which literally translated is spirit the God. Now, the reason I go to the trouble to tell you that is because if you just read it in the English where it says God is a spirit, it sounds like God is just a spirit. He's just another spirit. That's how it sounds, rather than spirit the God, which means that he is completely spirit in his essence. Not a spirit. God is not just another spirit. He is spirit in his essence. Spirit the God. In other words, God is not some stone God, or he's not some God who, was, who could be carved out of wood. You know, or a tree god where you'd have to go to a grove of trees and worship him like the pagan peoples did. Or a mountain god so that you had to go to some particular mountain in order to worship him. He is completely spirit. Therefore, those who worship him must, Jesus said, worship him spiritually. You know, not just outwardly, not just externally but spiritually inwardly not outwardly through rituals rites ceremonies forms sacrifices offerings fast days feast days sabbaths etc 
all of that can be accomplished, you know, just merely in the flesh, right? Anybody can go through all those motions and not have it affect them inwardly at all and then feel satisfied, well, I've done my bit, I've worshipped God. But that's not true worship. Real worship has to be in spirit and in truth, not in, like, the letter of the law. Now, of course, for the Samaritan woman or any person to be able to properly worship God in spirit, she or they would need to be born of the spirit. As Jesus had told Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is the person of the triune Godhead who makes this possible. Uh, he makes it possible for those born of the flesh, all natural men are born of the flesh. He makes The Holy Spirit makes it possible for those born of the flesh to be born again of the of the spirit and therefore able to worship God in spirit. You know, you can't worship God in spirit if you haven't been born again by the spirit. It's impossible. Far too many people do not worship God in spirit because they are attempting to worship him without having first been saved by the spirit. Their hearts are far from him even You know, during church services, they're merely going through all of the the motions. And and this is very possible to do even in churches which aren't ritualistic. Because to a degree, we all have rituals. You know, we come in and and they open in prayer and and then there's certain, you know, you sing songs. and, And there's a, you know, there's sort of a format. So some, you know, that's pretty... You can go through all that stuff, just like I had some of these people here, and not really be worshiping, right? Your mind could be on a million other things. That's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a danger for all of us. It's something, you know, when you sing the songs you're so familiar with, a lot of times I just go through the words and I'm not thinking about it. I have to catch myself all the time. Think about these words, really, truly worship the Lord. But uh, this is what the Lord warned about. Actually, he was speaking to unsaved people when he said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me. Now, so it's important. Of course, a person has to be born again by the Spirit in order to worship God truly. True worship. Now, the other vitally necessary aspect of worshiping God is to do so in truth which involves being sincere and being scriptural. To worship sincerely means without hypocrisy, you know, without any pretense at all. To worship sincerely in truth. You know, you're not, you're not just putting on a show for the people around you or for your friends and family. You really, really have the feeling within you. In other words, your, your, your heart is in agreement with your mind. And your mind is in agreement with your heart. I don't know how better to say it than just no pretense. You're truly sincere in your worship. That's one aspect of worshiping in truth. Um, The other aspect is to worship scripturally. Not only sincerely, but scripturally. And to, to worship scripturally involves sincere agreement with both the word of God and the son of God. Because they are the truth. The word of God is the truth, and Jesus Christ is the truth. If we're going to be true worshipers of God, we need to be worshiping the true God of the scripture. And um, there are, unfortunately, and to, to worship the true God of the scripture, of course, you have to worship him through knowing his true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are billions of people across the face of this earth who are sincere, 
sincere as they can be and very zealous in their worship. But they're worshiping totally in vain because they're worshiping the wrong, the wrong object. They're worshiping the wrong God. Or they're worshiping their own man-made idea about God or even Jesus Christ. But not the God, not the Jesus Christ of the scripture. So their worship is, uh, you know, no matter how sincere, it's totally in vain. Worshiping God in truth means to approach him in the right way, as well as, you know, sincerely, honestly, with no hypocrisy, but to worship him in the right way. And how do we worship God in the right way? Through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Samaritan woman needed to know God the son, you see, so that she could rightfully worship God the Father in both spirit and truth. And so this was the next step that she needed to take. She must have a full revelation of the Son of God. She must recognize and acknowledge the Son of God as her Savior. So let's just review, and this this puts it a little more succinctly than all of that, but just to, to properly worship God the Father in spirit and truth, there must be two main things. There must be, first of all, a regeneration of the spirit of God. must be a regeneration of the spirit of God. That's to worship God in spirit. And there also must be a revelation of the Son of God. That's worshiping him in truth. So you need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God, and you have to have full revelation of the Son of God. And then you can properly worship God the Father in spirit and truth. Now, it's interesting, as I just mentioned, that there um, we so far have discussed three of of the Lord's five musts. And I think I said I think I told you something wrong a couple weeks ago. I think I told you that there were five times Jesus said the word must in all four Gospels. Did I say that? I erase that, take that out of you, you know, unwind that, and let's retape over in your minds. <laughs> That's not true. There are five times Jesus said the word must in John's gospel. Is that what I said? Well, I hope that's what I said. Anyway, that's what's accurate. Five times he uses the word must in John's gospel. Now, we've already <coughs> talked about the first three, and it's really interesting. Okay, thank you. Five in the Gospel of John. And the first three that we've looked at, as of just a few minutes ago, refer to the the three members of the Trinity. And this is interesting. The first time Jesus said must in John's Gospel is when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that has reference to the saving work of God the Holy Spirit, just as we have been talking about. Then the second time he said must was when he said in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, also to Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that refers to which member of the triune Godhead? Himself, God the Son, and his saving work on the cross. And then the third must, which we just read in verse 24, has respect to God the Father. Jesus said, God the Father is the one who must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So we have you must be born again, referring to the work of the spirit. We've got so must the man of, uh, son of man be lifted up, referring to God the son. And we have God must be worshipped in spirit and truth, referring to God the father. All right, so with these statements that the Lord Jesus just made, he was telling the woman that uh, although salvation was of the Jews... It is for anyone, whether they be Jewish, Gentile, or a mixture of both, you know, like Samaritans were. 
It's available for anyone who willingly worships him in spirit and in truth. So he was speaking of a heavenly father as one who is no respecter of persons. And when I say no respecter of persons, I hope you understand that that means, that does not mean that God doesn't respect people. (laughs) You know, a child might might think that when no respecter of persons. Oh, he doesn't respect people. It doesn't mean that. It basically means that he is... um, He's not prejudiced about any kind of people. I mean, why would he be? He's the creator of all mankind. But Jesus was essentially telling the woman this. that, And he himself, you know, when you look at Jesus, who do you see? God. He's the one who manifests to us what God is like. And he had shown her what God's character was like in this aspect by his own behavior. I mean, he had obviously shown her that he was no respecter of persons. He had purposely broken down all those man-made barriers between her and him. And he told her essentially that, you know, that God, the Father, didn't care whether she or anyone else for that matter was rich or poor, whether they were um, uh, Jew, Gentile, or Samaritan, whether they were a man or a woman, a self-righteous Pharisee, such as Nicodemus, or a social outcast, such as her. God looks where? He seeks the heart. It, as a matter of fact, it even said there um, in verse 23, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. He is looking at the heart, and he is seeking for those who are willing to, to worship him spiritually, sincerely, and scripturally. Now, by the way, as we mentioned Nicodemus, it's at this point that I'd like to give you some of the contrast that we find between the Lord Jesus's last conversation with an individual who happened to be Nicodemus in chapter 3 and now his conversation is dialogue with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 and it's very interesting that those two conversations follow on the heel of you know the one follows right on the heels of the other and uh, this is showing us that God is and Jesus is indeed no respecter of persons. Because in one chapter he's talking to Nicodemus and the other he's talking to the women. Let's look at some of the comparisons between those two people. Nicodemus was a man. The Samaritan woman was what? Obviously a woman. Uh, Nicodemus was Jewish. The woman at the well was Samaritan. Nicodemus had his name revealed to us. We know his name. But do we know the Samaritan woman's name? No, we don't have any idea what her name was. Nicodemus was of the highest social rank. The Samaritan woman was of the lowest, in that she was a village outcast. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Samaritan woman was an adulteress. Nicodemus was an upright, you know, quote-unquote, moral person. The woman was very immoral. Nicodemus sought out Christ, but Christ sought out the woman. Nicodemus spoke with Jesus in the darkness of the night. The woman, on the other hand, her conversation with Jesus was during the daylight. We read about Nicodemus two more times in John's Gospel, but we don't ever hear of the Samaritan woman again after chapter 4. And that's probably because the, the woman got it the first time. You know, it took the man a little longer. <laughs> don't let your husbands hear this tape. <laughs> All right. Um, Nicodemus kept his interest in Jesus as a secret. He kept it a secret. The woman at the well did not keep her interest in him a secret. She immediately ran to tell others about him and openly did so. 
But regardless, and those are just some, maybe you can come up with some more differences, but regardless of the differences between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, both of them were told by the Lord Jesus of their spiritual need. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, regardless of who they are, what they are, what they've done, everyone needs to be told of their spiritual need. And both of them, happy to report, eventually did become believers. It is interesting that it took the morally upright, uh, self-righteous Pharisee, the religious man, longer to uh, become a believer than the immoral woman. And I think that's a lesson in itself. You know, immoral people, like if you go and witness to the prison, you don't usually have a problem with those people acknowledging their sinfulness and their, their, their need. Um, whereas the relig- religious person doesn't oftentimes see their need. And so it did take the religious person longer than the immoral woman. All right. Um, now, by this point in the dialogue... The woman had discerned that some of what Jesus was saying here sounded like what the Messiah would reveal to people about the Father when he came. So you see, the Lord finally had her thinking in terms of the Messiah. He had successfully also taken her mind off of her evasive issue. You know, how she tried to to stir the conversation away from her sinfulness onto that topic of where do we worship and you know over in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem Um, but so her next statement really starts to show her spiritual growth doesn't it I mean this woman is really quickly coming from darkness into light because she says I know that Messiah cometh Messiah cometh which is called Christ when he is come he will tell us all things Uh, this demonstrates to us you see that the Lord's subjects such as living water and his subject regarding her sin and his subject regarding worshiping in truth, God the Father. All those things were beginning to cause her heart to burn within her regarding this man with whom she was speaking. After all, I mean, no man could speak as he had spoken. He had already told her everything about her, and he had never met her before. And and now he was uh, speaking like he had this really close understanding and relationship with God. So she's beginning to now think about the Messiah and the, the one who is called the Christ or the anointed one of God. It was Notice it was the woman who brought up that subject of the Messiah, not Jesus. He didn't say the Messiah or the Christ. She did. So she's gone, let's review, from thinking of him just as a Jew to some respect, calling him a sir, then to, I perceive thou art a prophet, and now she's talking about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. She was quick, wasn't she? She wasn't only spunky, she was smart. <laughs> so he'd taken her, he had taken her uh, this far, and, and also notice in verse 9, she had asked a lot of questions. In verse 9, she had asked how. In verse 11, she had asked from whence. And then in verse 20, she had asked where. But all of a sudden, there's no more questions. All of her questions had ended. In her comments regarding the Messiah, the Christ, the Samaritan woman was actually revealing that, uh, that she, she had some good doctrine here. She was, she was revealing what she believed about the Christ, and all, of that, all that she revealed is correct. First of all, she believed in God's promise. 
regarding a coming Savior or a coming Messiah. She believed in that. She believed that the Messiah was coming. Now, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, a lot, the, a lot of the religious rulers of Israel had given up hope. Oh, there's no Messiah coming. That's, you know, just like people today scorn and scoff. He's never coming. The Sadducees, we know, didn't believe in that anymore. The Pharisees, really, were the only ones that still clung to the hope of the coming promised seed of the woman, the Messiah. But uh, she believed that the Messiah was coming one day. Now, the, remember, the Samaritans only accepted the books of Moses. So her faith in the coming Messiah was based just on the writings of Moses. Is this possible? Does God, through the writings of Moses, tell us of the coming Savior of the world? Yes, he does. Um, for example, I'll just give you some of the scriptures that support this. It says in Genesis 3.15, you cannot do without that one, that you know that's when God gave the first evangelical message when he said that it would be the woman's seed who would come and crush the the head of the serpent. That's the proto-evangelium. That's the first time we hear about the coming Messiah, the coming Savior of the world. And then in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham, speaking to his son Isaac, says, My son, God, will provide himself a lamb. And we have in Genesis 49.10, when Jacob is talking to his, his sons, he told them that the scepter would not depart from Judah. And we know, of course, the Messiah came through the tribe of Judah. Until when? Until Shiloh come. And Shiloh is a reference, again, to the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. Numbers 24.17, another book written by Moses, talked about the star coming from Judah. And that's, of course, how the wise men knew that the Messiah had been born. And it said uh, the star will come out of Judah and the scepter out of Israel. The king or the coming king of Israel would come out of, out of Israel. And then Deuteronomy 18.15, God says that he is going to raise up a prophet with a capital P, a prophet like unto who? Like unto Moses. This prophet, this coming prophet, would be just like Moses, a deliverer of the people. Take them out of their bondage. Slavery, their bondage. You know, we, we were slaves to sin and to death before Jesus set us free. Anyway, so yes, the writings of Moses did tell the Samaritans about a coming Messiah. Second, so she believed that accurately, that there was God's promise of the coming Messiah. That was true. Um, secondly, she believed that the Messiah was coming soon. And this is seen in the Greek when it uses the word cometh in verse 25. She says, I know that Messiah's Messiah, I wish it would just say Messiah, and I wouldn't have to bother with that S. I know that Messiah cometh. The word in Greek means coming, coming soon. It, it denotes a soon coming. And so she believed not, not only that the Messiah was coming, but that he was coming soon. Now, how do you suppose she might have known that? Well, I imagine that all the Samaritans had heard about John the Baptist. He was well-known throughout the whole land of Israel. And perhaps some Samaritans had even gone down to hear him. Who knows? Maybe she had done that. I don't know. But he had claimed, John the Baptist had claimed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, right behind me is coming the Messiah. So she accurately believed in not only the coming of the Messiah, but the soon coming of the Messiah. And third, She accurately believed in the supreme authority and understanding the omniscience 
of the soon coming Messiah. And that's what she revealed when she said, he will tell us what? All things. He will tell us. So this woman was pretty, pretty bright for being such an immoral she wasn't too bright when it came to men, <laughs> but she was with, with regard to some of this doctrine here. But still, her belief regarding the Messiah, even though it was correct, had not been a saving belief because it was not a belief of commitment to this coming Messiah. And this is very obvious to us by her immoral lifestyle. Rather, her faith had been a mental faith only. I mean, if she had true faith, such as Zacharias or Elizabeth or Mary or Joseph, she would have known the Messiah was coming and she would have surrendered, you know, committed her life, have put her faith in him so that she would be living an upright life. You know, we shall know them by their fruits. Her fruits definitely showed that it was a head knowledge only and not a heart knowledge. She knew about the Messiah with her mind, but she had not put her hope and trust in him with her heart. She was what my husband called calls a cabbage Christian. You know what a ca- you know a cabbage is all it's it's all a head. <laughs> there is no heart to the cabbage, right? You never get like a uh, what has a heart a artichoke. You never get to the heart of a cabbage. It's just all head. So that's what she had. It was all head knowledge and no heart cabbage Christian. However, the fact that she did already mentally, at least mentally, believe in the coming Messiah, that did make her open to personal saving belief. We notice notice that she did not reject the witness of Jesus when he finally does reveal himself to her. She does not reject it. So her, even her mental knowledge helped her because she was open to when he did reveal himself. When Christ, who was the seventh man, remember, we discussed this, five husbands, and she was living with the sixth fellow, so Christ was the seventh man in this immoral Samaritan woman's life. When he opened his mouth, the seventh man opened his mouth for the seventh time. You can go through this dialogue and count how many times Jesus spoke, and you come to number seven when he said, I that speak unto thee am he. So when he opened his mouth for the seventh time, He revealed his identity. In response to her statement regarding the coming and the omniscience of the Messiah, he said, I that speak unto thee am he. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there at that little scene? At the very moment, you see, that the woman expressed her desire for the Christ to come, he told her, in essence, he told her, you have him right before you. He is the one who has been speaking to you. And can't you just imagine the spiritual goosebumps that must have gone through that woman's body? And, you know, the emotions. Here, I put this back up there. The emotions that must have flooded through her soul, this this lonely, sin-sick soul, as she looked into his eyes, saw on his countenance. You know, she'd already been pricked in her spirit by his his knowledge of her and his just something about his authority and his presence and his words. No man had ever spoken like this. And I think when he said that to her, I that speak unto thee am he, she instantly, in a flash of time, just a second of time, knew that what he was saying was true. I know that that happened with me when, when I was 22 and a half years old. And for the first time in my life, some born-again Christians gave me the gospel message. 
Imagine that, growing up in America and never heard the gospel message. And the first time they present it to me, and thank the Lord they were using God's word, they were quoting scripture to me. I just, in, I can't even begin to explain it, but just in a second of time, I knew that what they were telling me was true. And I think that's how it happened with this woman. When he, Jesus revealed himself to her as the Messiah, the Christ, she just knew that it was true. He was indeed her Savior. And uh, so, the Lord, and we can learn a lot from his witnessing techniques, can't we? How he can take anything in the physical realm and turn it to the spiritual realm to witness to a person. And he does it so easily. Man, wish we, I could do that better. But he had taken her from a physical thirst on, on his part, you know, when he said, give me t- to drink. Taken her from a physical thirst on his part to everlasting spiritual life on her part. And how do we know this? Again, you shall know them by their fruit. How do we know that the woman, I believe with all my heart, the woman was saved there at that well? And the reason for this is because when we see her again, what is she doing? She's witnessing, yeah. She is running to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Yep. All right, let's look then at the disciples taught soul-winning wisdom. And for this, we'll read verses 27 to 38. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they, the men of the village, and perhaps others too, went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? (laughs) Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, There are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto it. Life eternal soweth, and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth, and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. We'll stop there. All right, at the moment the the Lord revealed to the woman that he is the Christ, his disciples returned. They may even have heard him say that, for all we know. They returned from Sychar with food. And um, by the way, I forgot to tell you that when he revealed to the woman that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, that is the first time in the Gospels that the uh, Lord himself, I'm behind here, revealed revealed himself as the Messiah, the Christ. Now, others have, have revealed that fact, such as John the Baptist and, uh, and Andrew, was it Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel. Others have said that he is the, the Christ, you know, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. But he had never made that claim directly, directly himself. The first one that he ever did that with was the Samaritan woman. Mr. Special, and I'm so glad it was a woman. <laughs> Now, although the disciples were amazed that he would even talk 
Do you remember how she had been shocked that he talked to her? Well, his disciples had the same kind of shock. They were, they were shocked that he would even talk with an immoral Samaritan woman. Even though they were shocked by this, apparently they had now spent enough time with him to at least know not to ask any questions. And that's why it says that they didn't, they didn't ask him, what seekest thou? You know, why, why are you talking to her? What do you seek from her? And they, and, they, and they didn't ask, why talkest thou with her? That's what we're told in verse 27. So they knew him well enough not to ask any questions, but they were shocked. Instead, it says they offered him uh, the food which they had purchased there in purchase <laughs> in Sychar. Then, meanwhile, back to the woman, in her excitement, we are told, boy, I, I can't get these pictures right, can I? Here. We are told that she left what? She left her water pot as she ran back to Sychar to tell others about this amazing man who claimed to be the Christ and who must be, because who else could tell all her all things that she had done? Now, it is interesting that the woman did leave her water pot, because the whole reason that she had made that half-mile trip out to Jacob's well was to fetch some water. The whole reason for her trip in the first place was to get some literal physical water. However, she had found instead, this is where I had that other, she had found instead something much, much better, hadn't she? She had found the well of living water. And as a consequence, you see, her priorities had changed. And this woman changed just like that. She's like my husband. It took me sort of a while. I, I don't know. I was slower than him in that capacity. But when my husband got saved, it was a 180-degree turn. And that's how it is with this. Well, when you get saved, your priorities do change, don't they? Things that interested you before, suddenly they just have no interest. You have no interest in them all of a sudden. And you just, well... You're a new creature in Christ. And that's what we see here with her. Her mind was now fixed on Christ and on things above, not on things on the earth, temporal things like clay water pots and literal water. It may be that the woman purposely left her water pot for Jesus to finally get that drink that he had asked for. You know, as far as we know, he hadn't ever really gotten that drink. But maybe she left it there for him so he could have a drink. Uh, also, it would seem that the Holy Spirit's mention through John, the author of this gospel, that the Holy Spirit mentioned the woman leaving her water pot, that the Holy Spirit might, do, might have done this as a symbolic testimony of her new life. You know, she, she herself had now become a vessel, and she was full to overflowing with Christ's living water. Um, and so overfull that all she could think about was, you know, getting to other people and quenching their dry spirits. So we see this, you know, instant change in her life that she's no longer concerned about the physical. She's concerned about the spiritual. And the Holy Spirit may have mentioned that leaving of the water pot to tell us that. Also, she was so full of excited um, eagerness to, to share her good news and quench the thirst the thirsty souls of her own people, that it may be she just didn't want to be burdened with that heavy water pot. I don't know, maybe she had filled it while she and Jesus were having their little dialogue. Maybe she'd been drawing water out of the well and filling her water pot, and, and it would be so heavy she didn't want to be encumbered with that extra weight on her rush back to the village. So maybe that's why she left the water pot. I don't know, you know, we could speculate about it.
But at any rate, what she wanted to do was just get as quickly as she could back to her fellow men and, um, and tell them about this fantastic man who must be the Christ because in leaving the water pot, one more thing, we know that she did intend to return, right? And so she left it there basically telling Jesus, I'll be back, but before I hear any more from you, and this is so commendable with this woman, she wanted other people to be with her and hear from him. You know, she didn't want to stand there and just absorb it all herself. She, yeah, and you know, she had probably been really scorned. You know, I'm not saying it was wrong how she was ostracized because she had done a, a bad things. But she didn't seem to harbor any bitterness, did she? First people she wanted to go tell was the people of her own village, and she was a village outcast. So it's very, it's, it's marvelous to see this about this woman that even though she had been shunned by her people, um, the first thing in her heart was uh, to share her faith in Christ with them. It says, it does say that she told the men. Did you pick up on that? <laughs> she had better rapport with the men than she did with the women. She, she didn't, it doesn't say she talked with the w- women, and I did look that up, and it is anthropos, which is men. She probably didn't go to the women because they probably wouldn't have listened to her. Oh, it's just her. And in telling the men, that really was wise, because the men, in turn, would tell their wives. And the, and the wives would tell the children, you know. And so I think when, when they came out, probably the whole village came out. Uh, so the Samaritan woman had come face to face with the very source of living water. And the result was that she wanted to run and tell others about him. And that should be our desire as well. You know, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be our, our lifelong reaction is to share him with other people. And so this Samaritan woman remains forever in the eternal word of God. Just think, you know, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about her. She remains in the eternal word of God as a great example of a changed life. And she also serves us as a great uh, example of a wonderful witness. For the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back to the number seven. You, you all know by now that the number seven in the scripture refers to completeness and perfection. So, remembering that, it's fascinating to notice that the woman's statement to the village men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever, ever I did, is not this the Christ? That is the seventh time that she spoke in John's narrative here. You know, six times she had spoken previous to this, and all six times she was speaking in the flesh. And now in her seventh time, she is uh, um, she's doing three things. She is, we not only find her acknowledgement of sin in this seventh time she speaks, she's acknowledging her sin. She said, all things that ever I did... And she's not only recognizing Christ's omniscience when she says he told me all things. So she's acknowledging her own sin. She's recognizing Christ's omniscience. But she's also inviting others to come to Jesus, who is the seventh man in her life. So isn't that interesting? I counted through this. And Jesus' seventh time that he spoke is when he revealed himself to her as the Christ, and the seventh time she spoke was when she revealed him to the people of Sychar. And by the time, also by the time she had finished her dialogue with Jesus, 
left her water pot, ran back to the village, which was half a mile, told the, the people about Jesus, and then they all came back out to him. What time do you suppose it was? The seventh hour. <laughs> now, it's implied by the fact that the Lord's disciples went to purchase some food, obviously, that they had been hungry. And, of course, Jesus had been hungry. On their return to the well, however, the Lord's men found that their master seemed to be full of all sorts of renewed energy and refreshment. And they marveled that he was, not only they marveled that he spoke to the woman, but they marveled that he wasn't hungry. You know, they put food before him and they said, Master, eat. But he mystified them by saying, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. That, that statement caused them to, you know, probably look at each other and say, well, who has brought him food? That's what they ask. Have any man brought him aught to eat? How, how is he not hungry any longer? We know he was starving before we left. They were thinking of meat or food in physical terms only, weren't they? Just as the woman originally had thought of water in physical terms only, and just as Nicodemus had thought originally of birth in physical terms only. You see, we're dumb sheep, aren't we? It takes us a while to catch on. And we see this throughout the, our study of the life of Christ, that men are, and women are always taking him physically. They, you know, just, it takes them a while to understand that he's going to a deeper level. He's talking spiritually when he talks about physical things. He's using analogies. Now, note, in the woman's encounter with Jesus, she no longer cared after she came to know he was, she no longer cared about the physical water. And we see this evidenced by the fact that she left her water pot. On the other hand, in the Lord's encounter with the woman, we find that he no longer cared about physical food. She no longer cared about the literal water. He no longer cared about the literal food that his men brought to him. You see, both of them had been filled in their uh, new spiritual relationship with one another. You see, when we come to know Christ, not only are we filled to overflowing with joy, but so is he. Isn't that exciting to know? That's his meat. That's his joy, is in seeing his sheep come to him and, and follow him. It was God's will for, God to, for Christ to witness and to minister to this Samaritan woman, and then through her to reach this entire village of Sychar. And this was the reason it had said at the beginning that he must needs go through Samaria. It was a, remember we said it was a spiritual must. While Christ was leading the woman down this path of salvation, he felt no physical hunger because he was just too preoccupied with her eternal soul. When, when he saw that her heart was one to him, he felt invigorated because his heart had been fed. And so in further instruction to his men, in hopes that they would get it, he said to them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You know, is this true in your life? If you ever, you know, if you've been witnessing to somebody and you happen to be, the Lord privileges you enough that they, that, that you get to reap the harvest there. Are you thinking, when that's going on, are you thinking about anything physical, like physical water or physical food? No. I mean, you're so preoccupied with that person's soul that that's the furthest thing from your mind and your heart, isn't it? 
And that's here what we see with Jesus. That should, well, I know that that it probably happens to you too when you're doing your homework, right? <laughs> you get so into it that you don't even think about eating. But I have had that experience many times when I get so into a passage or I'm reading through some commentators about a passage, I get so into my husband sometimes has to yell at me, Catherine, you've got to stop and eat. Now, I know it doesn't look like I don't eat, but there are times I forget a meal here and there. <laughs> oh, you know, I think about, because this is one, one year ago today, my mother died, March 23rd last year. And I remember how wonderful it was that my aunt, her younger sister, who was, was, is 20 years younger than my mother, my aunt was more like my sister. She was saved at the um, memorial service that we had for my mother. And I just remember sitting there, and the, I had just come down from, from giving a testimony about my mother and her faith and where she was and everything, and how wonderful it is. And I, I knew with all my heart that my mother, because she had told me this, she said, it'd be worth me dying if Pam or my brother or my sister would get saved. And my brother and sister weren't at that memorial service, but Pam, I came, sat down, she was right, or you two ladies, and she was sitting right next to me. Some of you were there. (laughs) And I'll never forget when the pastor was giving an invitation that she reached over and grabbed my hand. She said, I want that. I want Jesus. And I was so full I was just so full. I had gone from, you know, when you're at your mother's funeral, it's about the saddest, one of the saddest places you can be, unless it's a child or something, but, or a husband, but a mother is close, you know. And I went immediately to soaring. I think I was in the heavens rejoicing with my mother because I thought she must be so happy saying it was worth it all. Because she, well, I know I had prayed for my aunt for probably 30 years. And I don't, you know, my mother didn't pray as long as my mother wasn't a Christian as long as I was. But, wow, last thing in the world you think about at a time like that is anything physical, right? Mm. Anyway, the, the Lord's grace is sufficient. I know some of you are going through hard times, but, you know, it is amazing. I look back over this past year and just, all I can do is praise him and thank him. How he sees you through when you go through these, these hard times. His grace truly is sufficient. And you know you can rejoice when you know you're going to see your loved one again. And that's why it's so important that we witness to our loved ones. So we have that hope. I didn't have that hope at my father's death. And boy, what a world of difference. There's, I mean, there is, thank you. There's nothing like knowing where your loved ones are in the arms of the Savior. Anyway, my, my favorite verse is John four thirty four. If you ever see me sign my name when I sign a letter, I always put underneath my name John four thirty four because this is my desire would be that my meat is to do the will of him that sent me, same one who sent all of you, and to finish the work. You see, he was teaching, the Lord, and saying that, was teaching his men that the one who is obedient to do the will of God will be sustained with spiritual meat so that he can finish the work to which God has called him. This was really the one basic principle of the Lord's entire life. During, During the time he walked this earth, this was his one basic principle. He was hungry above all else to do what? The Father's will and to finish the work 
that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And we know how interested he was in completing his job, and we see this evidenced when he was on the cross. And he cried out what? You know, finally, I've done it. It is finished. Te telestai. It is finished. Oh, that's another place I would have liked to have been and heard him say that. It is finished. And, you know, the Apostle Paul had this same motivation to finish well. And he could say that at the end of his life. He could say, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Oh, what a motivation. You know, I look at some of you who are older than me, and I see you finishing your course well, and I just say, let that be true with me too. I remember old Dr. Lehman Strauss, every time we would see him, he'd say, pray for me that I finish my course well. You know, it's, it should be all of our prayers. It really should. I know in the 33 years now, I gave that away. Now you can figure out how old I am. Oh, the 33 years I've been a Christian, I'm not quite 55, but I have seen far too many, far too many Christians who don't finish their course well. They get weary in well-doing, and they fall by the wayside. They faint away. You know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to start well, but it's a far better thing to end well, isn't it? You know, that's what we learn about in the, the parable of the seeds. A lot of people, boom, they just spring up right away. But a little persecution or a little this and that, and boom, where are they? They're gone. So... We need to finish well. That's what really counts is finishing our course well. Now, in John 4.35, I didn't mean to be so weepy today. We're having, we had this yesterday, too. Yeah. Jesus directed his disciples' attention in, in verse 35 to the harvest field, which directly referred to the Sychar villagers on their way out to meet him but which indirectly and symbolically refers to the entire world, because the entire world is really the harvest field, right? He said, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are, are, present tense, white already to harvest. You see, the Samaritans of Sychar were white already to harvest, just as many of the fields of the world in every generation have also been ready and ripe for harvesting. Even though at this point in their spiritual growth, it was a totally foreign idea for the, um, the, the uh, Lord's disciples to reach out to Samaritans. The Lord was giving them a much-needed lesson in uh, missionary work. You know, that they were kind of like Jonah. Go to the Samaritans? You know, Jonah, go to the Ninevites and witness to them, Lord? You must have that wrong. Something's you know how you can outline the, the book of Jonah? <laughs> I'll never forget one, of, one preacher. And I can't remember who he was, but he outlined the book of Jonah for us like this. God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, oh. <laughs> but the disciples uh, didn't see the Samaritans of Sychar as a field ready for harvesting. And we know that because where had they just come from? Where had they bought their meat and their bread? They had just been to the village, and yet not one single Samaritan came back with them 
to meet Jesus at the well, right? So the logical conclusion from this is that not one of the Jewish disciples told any of the Samaritan citizens that the Christ was sitting only a half mile outside of their village, the Christ, the Messiah, and come see him. They could have, Andrew or or Philip, they they could have used the same words they, they had used before, just come and see. Essentially, that's what the woman said. But... They didn't. They were only thinking of their empty stomachs and not about anyone's eternal soul. In fact, at the very moment that the people of Sychar, and these are some modern-day Samaritans, they would have been coming out dressed in their white robes. That was their common dress. They would have looked like a whole field of white approaching, and they were coming out to meet Jesus. And so perhaps Jesus actually pointed to them when he said to his men, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. I don't know what else he'd be pointing at that would be white except cotton. I couldn't think of anything else. So I think he was pointing to all these Samaritans coming out in their white. And you can see Sychar from Jacob's well, so that's very possible. One non-Jewish immoral woman had put all the disciples to shame, hadn't she? Nobody had followed them out to to meet Jesus. But practically the entire village came running out to meet him due to her testimony. And the result of her witness, we find out, is that many of the citizens of Sychar became believers in Jesus Christ, and many more came to believe in him when they heard his own words, we're told. And this account, I know I'm running late, so if you have to go, go. But I want to get it all on the tape, so I'll just keep those of you that can stay. This account should really be a great encouragement to those of us who think perhaps that we have sinned too greatly for God to ever use us. You know, this is, this is one of Satan's greatest ploys, is to get people to think, I can't be used by, by God. You know, I've just made too many wrong decisions, and, and uh, I've committed too many sins, and there's no way that God can ever use me. You know, even people who have been saved have this problem, struggling with, I'm just incapable of being, you know, I am too great of a sinner. This woman is an example to us. She didn't focus on all her past wrong decisions and all the sins that she had committed, her immoral lifestyle. She just got busy telling people about Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? She, you know, she was no skilled teacher. She didn't say, well, before I can witness, I need to spend three and a half years with Jesus, or I need to go to seminary. You know, she was no great theologian. She simply invited others to come and meet the Savior. We can compare her really again to Andrew or Philip. Just come and see for yourselves. She gave a very uh, simple message. Wasn't anything really complicated. This man's told me everything about myself. Why don't you come and see? I think he got. He has to be the Christ. Has to be the Messiah. Can we do that? Can any of us do that? You know, I don't have any Bible training. I didn't have the privilege of being raised in a Christian home. I didn't have the privilege of going to Christian school or even a Christian university. Went to a totally secular university. And I'm just really a housewife. But, you know, if you're overflowing with living water, you just, you do what you can do. And that's what we're all called to do. And this woman, this immoral Samaritan woman, is a perfect example for all of us in that capacity. So why, other than their prejudice, did the disciples fail to tell, and I think their prejudice was the main thing, (laughs) why did they fail to tell the Samaritans about Jesus? Perhaps they thought it would take too long to reap a harvest. You know, maybe they thought in their minds, oh, these these people are just so mixed up in their understanding of God 
and uh, they don't even accept the rest of the, the prophets other than Moses, and they've, got, they've been tainted with paganism. It, we would have to stay here four months and teach these people before they would ever get it. Maybe that's what they were thinking, um, although I think most of it has to do with their racial prejudice. But this teaches us not only how, long, how wrong it is to keep the gospel from any particular group based on race or religion. We're to be witnesses to the whole world. Doesn't matter if they're a Muslim. Doesn't matter if they live in uh, Timbuktu or Iraq or wherever. We're to witness to everybody. No racial prejudice and no religious prejudice. But it also teaches us that we never know how much time of preparation is needed for a harvest. You might look at somebody and say, oh man, it would take me forever to reach that person. And they might be. You don't know who's sown the seed ahead of you, you see. Who had sown seed for not only this woman, but all the uh, Samaritans of Sychar? There had been others that had come along and sown seed. One of them was Moses. Moses had written the first five books, the only five books that they accepted. And he, as I've already shown you, told them about the coming Messiah. And another one who had sown some seed was John the Baptist. They had probably, like I said, very probably heard about him and his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who else had sown seed? Well, uh, the, uh, Jesus had sown seed in the woman's heart. And then she, in turn, went back and sowed seed in the Samaritan's heart. And who got the benefit of reaping? The disciples. And they got to reap where they had never even labored. John Butler says this, he says, the, wo the woman sowed, the disciples reaped. Some lay foundations, others build the superstructure. Both tasks are important in raising a great building. Some preach, some stay in nursery at church. Some go out as missionaries, others give gifts to enable the missionaries to go to their fields of service. We, he says, and this is so true, we have a habit of giving more glory to the reaper than the sower. Is that true? And that's, that shouldn't be. You know, the person who's keeping the children in the nursery so that those parents can hear the gospel being preached are just as much a part of somebody getting saved as the preacher. Because we all work together, you know? The only one to get the glory is, is God. He says, we have a habit of giving more glory to the reaper than the sower. We give more attention to the labor that is seen outwardly rather than the labor that is seen inwardly. The prayer closet ministry gets no notice. It is only the person whose service is seen in the public eye that usually gets the most notice. And that's true. And that's unfortunate because that shouldn't be. But both, he says, both the hidden and the public ministry are needed and both are important. And I say amen, amen, amen to that. All right. The last thing we're going to discuss real quickly is the delight in Sychar's whiteness. And this I'll read verses 39 to 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there how many days? Two. Now that is significant. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is so interesting. At the invitation of the Samaritans themselves, the Lord Jesus and his men stayed with them for 
two days. So there is no telling how many no-nos the Lord broke as he ate and drank with the Samaritan people, as he slept in their beds. You know, all these barriers that he was breaking and getting his men to break, too. I'm sure that was really tough on them. It was one thing for them to go and purchase food from them, but to live with them, drink with them, eat with them, sleep in their houses... Just think what was going on in the disciples' minds and hearts. But the Lord was teaching them, and he was also teaching the Samaritan sheep how to genuinely worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, Now, the citizens of Sychar, after having spent two days with Jesus, they turned to the woman who initially had, uh, you know, told them who she had met out at Jacob's well. And they said to her, you know, now we believe not just because of your witness to us, but now we believe because we ourselves have heard him. For two days they got to hear him teach them. And they said, and this is fascinating, and now we know that this is indeed the, the Christ, the Savior of the world. You know what happened in this village? Total revival broke out. I think almost everybody in that, if not everybody in that village, of purchased, was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just like the Ninevites, when Jonah finally got there, there was a tremendous revival in Nineveh. Um, but what's amazing here is, is that this is the first time any people had acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And it wasn't the Jews Wouldn't you think it would be the Jews that would make that first acknowledgement? But it wasn't. It was the Samaritans, the half-breeds, those who the Jews despised. And you see how Jesus could so identify with the Samaritans? Maybe that's why he gave the parable of him being a good Samaritan. He could identify with these people who the Jews despised because... They so despised him by the end of his ministry. Actually, the next week's lesson, we're going to see he is so despised even in Nazareth, his hometown, where you think they would be the first ones to say he's the savior of the whole world. The the people of Nazareth. But no, it was Samaritans. They, um, They had not only learned from the lips of the woman who Jesus is, but they discovered for themselves what he is. He's the one who meets man's deepest need. He is alone the one who satisfies. And therefore, they stand in real striking contrast to the unbelief and the rejection of the Jews in uh, Judea and Jerusalem. Remember after the Lord cleansed the temple, he performed many miracles in Jerusalem. And yet we don't read about a revival such as happened in Sychar of Samaria. And Jesus didn't perform any miracles in Sychar. We don't read of him performing a single miracle. You see, the Samaritans believed in him because of his, his words, not his signs and his miracles. And so because of that, the Samaritans are a preview of the acceptance of Christ by his church. Because she too, the church, consists of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Is not the church of Jesus Christ a (laughs) half-breed? Like the Samaritan woman, the church also is a mixture. And how long did Jesus dwell with the Samaritans? Two days. And with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. So... I can't be dogmatic about that, but it's been about 2,000 years that the Lord has stayed with 
the church. We half breeds. <laughs> so anyway, very interesting. Thank you so much for your patience. I'm sorry I really kept you over time today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is indeed so rich and so deep. And I know we don't even begin to scratch the surface. But, Father, may we truly, each and every one of us, learn, if we haven't already, how to fully worship you in spirit, spirit and in truth. And may we, Father, be sowers of the seed in season and out of season. May our meat, our satisfaction, not be based on physical needs and desires, but just like our Savior, may our meat be to do your will and to finish the work which you have called each of us to do, because I know you have given an assignment to everyone here, so that in the eternal world we may all reap our wages of exceeding joy together, all of us together, the sowers, the reapers, the, all of us as co-laborers together, we may rejoice exceedingly and give all of our glory to the only one who truly deserves it, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.